The world around us is desperate for hope. It doesn't take a whole lot of discernment to see. Hopelessness abounds in the culture and the world around us. And the hopelessness around us is seen in a lot of ways. Uh, hopelessness is seen as people who live their lives as though it were a constant ordeal. For many people today, their lives are one great ordeal. It begins when they wake up and it doesn't end until they go to bed at night. Hopelessness is seen as people give up on trying to improve their lives or their situation or, or the world around them. They just have resigned to the fact that the way things are right now is the best they could ever hope to be. There's no point in trying to make anything any better. Might as well just go along, get along, and deal with the way things are. Hopelessness is also seen or, or heard in, in pessimistic, cynical words. Words of negativity and constant criticism flow from hearts filled with hopelessness. Now, this sort of hopelessness, uh, it often tries to disguise itself as being a realist or just speaking the truth or the ever popular just saying. Uh, but the fact is, words and actions flow from the heart, reveal the deep sense of hopelessness many people feel. Our, our culture and our community is desperate for hope. Advent reminds us that we have hope because of Jesus. Jesus has come. Jesus is coming. As disciples of Jesus, we have hope because of Jesus. So we're going to look at the hope of Christmas this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to Luke 2. I'm going to look at the first 20 verses. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out of the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terribly frightened. So the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst people with whom He is pleased. When the angels had departed from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem, then to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph, the baby, as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen him, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at the things which were told them by the shepherd. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just 
as had been told them. The title of the message this morning is The Hope of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. Great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. You are our rock and our fortress, our strength and our shield, a very present help times of trouble. Father, we, we need hope today. We need, Father, you to be for us the God of hope who fills us with all joy and peace and believing so we would abound in hope through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, fill us today with hope. Fill us today with your spirit. Fill us so that as we leave this place, Father, we would be different. In a world of hopelessness, in a world of despair, in a world of darkness, we would shine as lights for Christ. Father, fill me this morning with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in our hearts. Father, if we're here today and we have kind of fallen back in our relationship with you, stir us. Draw us to recommit our lives to you. Father, if we're here today and we have given in to despair and to hopelessness, stir within us hope through Christ. If we're here today and we just need encouragement, stir us with your spirit and encourage us. Father, whatever the need we have, we know that you are the God who can meet that need. And we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as the book of Genesis is coming to a close... The patriarch Joseph, he makes a prophetic statement about the coming of the Messiah. And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, this was a big statement for at this point, Judah wasn't the ruler. There were no people that they ruled over. Judah was just one of the the leaders of the tribes of the nation of Israel. And yet what what Israel or what Jacob makes a prophecy of is that Judah will have a ruler's staff. He will have a scepter. And the scepter, of course, is a symbol of authority. And Jacob makes a prophecy. Judah would end up eventually become the ruler over the nation of Israel. And he would, Judah would stay in power and rule until it was time for the Messiah to come. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you know Israel does become a nation. And it wants a king. The first king is chosen and his name is Saul. But he is from the tribe of Benjamin. He is an unfit king. He is an unworthy king. He is deposed by God. He is replaced by a man after God's own heart. The man called King David. Who was of the tribe of Judah. David passes. He is succeeded by his son Solomon. After Solomon takes charge. The, he lives. He dies. He passes the son of the kingdom on to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is not a good king by any stretch of the imagination. Rehoboam, through his kingship, causes the nation to be divided. Ten tribes form northern Israel. The nation often called Samaria or Israel. And it is the ten northern tribes and they are under the king named Jeroboam. Then the two southern tribes... uh, Benjamin and Judah, they unite under the king Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And over the next several hundred years, Israel, the the ten, had 19 kings from about seven different royal families. In that same time period, Judah had 19 kings and they were all from the same royal family. They each came from the line of Judah. All were descendants of King David. Even during times where Jerusalem was conquered, 
The foreign rulers that would set up governors or puppet kings chose someone of the tribe of Judah. Where we are now, the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, things have changed. The Romans have conquered. The Romans have set up their own governor. The scepter has departed from Judah. Judah was under the rule of Rome. Caesar Augustus reigning as emperor. Quirinius was governor of Syria. Judah was included in the province of Syria. Herod was now the king of Judea, the king of the area. The scepter had departed just as Jacob had prophesied. And now everything was ready for God to keep the greatest promise he had ever made. The promise of a Messiah. Now the promise of a Messiah was the hope of Israel. From the day that, Israel, that, that the people sinned in Genesis chapter 3, the hope of the nation had always been that a Messiah would come. Lineage of Abraham, lineage then of David after. And the hope was waiting, and now the time has come. And of course we know the story, we know Jesus is the Messiah that was to come. Jesus was the hope of all of Israel. Jesus was the hope on this first Christmas morning. And so the the key truth today is very simply, Jesus is the hope of Christmas. We have hope because of Jesus. We have hope because of who He is and what He's done. This passage, it gives us three facts about Jesus being the hope of Christmas. Three facts, reasons we can have hope because of Jesus. The first is that God is sovereign... Overall, Now, at first glance, it does not appear that this has much to say about God being sovereign over all. For from all outward appearances, the God of Israel has lost control. Their people, His people have sinned and have strayed far from Him. The religion God established has devolved into a, a series of rituals and dry religious activity and not really the devotion to Yahweh it was meant to be. The people have been conquered. His chosen royal lineage has been deposed and they are not in charge anymore. Pagans rule over the land of God and the people of God and they do what they will with impunity. And in this time of them ruling over, they also impose these terrible taxes upon them. They execute the people of God with without hesitation. Almost daily outside of Jerusalem, Jews are crucified by the Romans to keep the rest in line. Then in verse 1, they issue a decree that all the inhabited land, basically all the land that Rome ruled, was to take a census. The census was for the sole purpose of getting for Rome to know exactly how much taxes they could be able to exact from the land. How many people were there in those lands? What did they do? How much money did they make? How much can we exact from them? And at the same time, this, this census, this taxation was very difficult because the people had to return to their the city of their birth, the city of where they were basically from. So if it happened here today, all of us would then have to go back to the land where we were born, the cities, the towns, the states where we were born so that we could be tax 
there and keep it in record so they would know who was who and where was where. At this same time, Mary and Joseph, they lived in a place called Nazareth. They lived in and they had to travel to Bethlehem, which is where Joseph was from. At the same time, the prophecy about the coming Messiah said he would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was about 100 miles away from Nazareth. Now, it's easy for us to think 100 miles isn't that big of a deal because we travel 100 miles often. We go to Woodward for just a day. We go to Liberal for, so we go to Amarillo just to eat. Um, But then, in those days, that was not the case. People didn't often leave their hometowns. The only way they could travel was by donkey, by camel, or by walking. To go 100 miles to walk was a really significant event. Particularly if you had a pregnant wife. So the time has come for the Messiah to be born. God has established the world exactly the way He wants it to be. And He wants to bring in His promised Messiah. At the same time, the people are conquered. The nation is ruled over. And the parents He's chosen to be the parents of the Messiah do not even live in the town the Messiah is meant to be born. These would all be problems if God were not sovereign overall. But God is sovereign overall, so He begins to orchestrate events in such a way that that people he has chosen would be in the place he chose them to be when the Messiah was born. God was going to do something that in some ways would be unthinkable, but in other ways had happened before. God was going to cause a pagan king who did not even worship him, did not acknowledge him, to accomplish his will. God was going to stir that pagan king's heart in such a way he would issue a decree that would result in the people God chose to be the parents of the Messiah to be in Bethlehem at just the right time when the Messiah was to be born. And everything happened exactly the way God said it would happen. One of the things we always have to remember is God is sovereign over all. It's important for us to remember that because life is going to be filled with circumstances that are beyond our control. There are going to be any number of things where we try our hardest to fix it, to make it right, to make it work. And, and our effort, man, at times, not only are not going to make it better, they may even make it worse. And in those times, if, if everything is dependent upon us, if God is not sovereign overall, we will despair in those moments. We must always remember God is sovereign overall. Now, I think the idea of God being sovereign over all could result, could necessitate a shift in our thinking at times. Not because we don't believe God is sovereign, but because we bought into a cultural idea of what it means for God to be sovereign. The cultural idea of God being sovereign over all is we don't have any money and then we happen to find money we forgot about. We put on a coat and we put our hands in our pocket and, oh, there's that hundred dollars we needed. We didn't even remember putting it in there. Woo, God is sovereign. Or we're driving down an icy road. We slide off the road. We spin. We smile. We go all over. We hit the ditch. The car's not damaged. We're not hurt. Woo, God is sovereign. Truly, God is sovereign in those moments. And that is a picture of God's sovereignty. God's very present help in times of trouble. But what we want to think, even if we would never say it, is if God was sovereign because things turned out good for us. 
But what if we had put on that same coat and we put our hands in our pocket and the money was not there? And then a whole series of negative events happened. Was God sovereign in that moment? What if the car wreck, we slid off the road and and we rolled and we flipped and there was terrible danger and hurt to us that happened? Was God sovereign in that moment? What if the prayer we pray for God to heal, to fix, to deliver is an answer? Is God sovereign in that moment? See, the cultural idea of God's sovereignty is God is only sovereign if things work out the way we think they should. And if things don't work out the way we think they should, then we, again, we we probably wouldn't say it in this way, but God isn't sovereign in that moment. And so we develop an idea of the sovereignty of God that gives us comfort only so long as everything turns out good. But we find no comfort or encouragement in the sovereignty of God when things go bad. The reality is God is sovereign over all, all the time. God is sovereign when the test result is bad. And God is sovereign when the test result is good. God is sovereign when the healing happens through medicine. God is sovereign when the healing happens miraculously. God is sovereign when the healing doesn't happen on this side of eternity. God is always sovereign. We have to be able to look at things, at at the Bible particularly. See it as it says it. This time where things were out of control for Israel and had been for, for years. I mean, this wasn't recent. The Romans had it just conquered. They had been conquered and had oppressed for years upon years upon years. And God was sovereign in all of that. So I don't know what 2022 holds. It could hold great things. It could hold worse things. Don't know. But here's what I do know. God is sovereign over 2022. God's sovereignty didn't end in February or March of 2020. When the world broke and everything went downhill around around kind of around the world. God was sovereign in that. And he's sovereign now and he'll be sovereign next year, no matter what, no matter what the year brings. And if we're to have hope, no matter what the world brings, no matter what the world offers, no matter what comes, we must understand God is sovereign. God was sovereign when Israel thrived. God was sovereign when Israel suffered. God is sovereign in our lives when everything works out the way we think it should. God is sovereign when our prayers are answered and great things happen. And God is sovereign when nothing works as we think it should and our prayers seem to go unanswered. God is sovereign. The story of Jesus' birth, of all of these things happening at just the right time and just the right way that results in them being born in just the right place. It's not coincidence. It's not chance. It is a sovereign God orchestrating events in the world he created to accomplish his will. There is hope. There is hope in knowing God is sovereign over all things. Second, Jesus must be declared to all. Right. Look at verse eight in the same region. There were shepherds staying in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. 
And they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So Jesus, one, has been declared by the angels to the shepherds. Verse 17, the shepherds go and then they make known the statement which has been told to them and all who heard it, which... The idea of all who heard it seems to imply it's more than just those who are there at the birth of Jesus. right? So it's not just they, they went and they told Mary, though they did. It, it gives the appearance that they tell everybody they can. They're declaring to anyone that will listen that a Savior has been born. And so the, the idea is Jesus must be declared to all. Now, the angel's announcement about Jesus really is something that I know we've heard before. I know we've talked about before, but it is something that we have to always be reminded of. Something that would change our perspective about sharing the gospel, about telling others about Jesus. If we truly embraced it deep down in our hearts. Right? One is the gospel is good news. Right? So the angels tell them. Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news. One of the key things for us to know about sharing the gospel is the gospel is good news. Jesus himself is good news. Now, the world wants us to feel ashamed about sharing the gospel with others. The world wants us to feel ashamed about saying Jesus is the only way. And they they pour such shame and such contempt on the message that if we're not careful, we begin to believe it. We believe we're assaulting people. We believe we're oppressing people. We believe we're making people's life miserable when we tell them the gospel. This is all false. The gospel is good news. We are sharing good news with people who desperately need it. Now, granted, the majority of the world probably doesn't know they need this good news. But they do. In a similar way that someone who had cancer would need to know you had a cure for the cancer. Something that was going to kill them and you had what could save them. That's good news. Now, what if they didn't know they had cancer? And you had to be the one to break the news to them. You have cancer. Well, that sounds like you're telling bad news. But the good news, I have the cure for cancer. So we talk to people and we share Jesus. We do have to talk about sin, which is bad news. But we share the bad news so they will understand the good news. That Jesus has come to take away the problem of sin. Jesus is the good news we're sharing. So as we talk about Jesus, as we talk about sharing the gospel, as we think about it, we have to think about it as good news because What the world around us needs most of all is Jesus. They they don't need politics and they don't need this or they don't need that. They need Jesus. Jesus is what makes the news good. So the gospel is good news. Secondly, the gospel brings great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. Not only is the news good, but it also brings great joy. Why does the good news bring great joy? Verse 11. For is born to you a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. The news is good because it tells us about Jesus. The news brings joy because it reveals to people a Savior. As I said, man's greatest problem is the problem of sin. That, that is the greatest problem all of humanity has. Humanity has sinned. They have violated God's righteous standards and they are condemned to face the wrath of God against their sins. You think, well, that doesn't sound like good news of great joy. And it wouldn't be if we stopped there. But it's good news and great joy because while man has sinned and earned the, the wages of sin, Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin. He came to be the Savior over sin. Through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus paid the penalty humanity earned. Well, he went to the cross. He went to the cross because of our sin. And again, I'll be honest with you. We think the world knows that. I don't think they do. The, The world may know that Jesus lived. They probably, if they know about Jesus even a little bit, they probably know he died, may even know he died on a cross. But I'm telling you, what they don't know is why he died. And that's because a lot of the the cultural ideas about Jesus have taken the picture or have taken the emphasis off of Jesus died for sin. Right? I mentioned this in Sunday school. Some of the one of the emphasis you'll see in our culture is Jesus died as an example. What? What did his death accomplish? An example of what? Just dying? It's not. It's not the best example. Jesus died to show how much He loved us. Okay, but what did that accomplish? If it didn't accomplish anything, that's that's not a great example, right? I mean, that doesn't really... I mean, and I use this in Sunday school. Imagine Kelly and I are walking down the road and a train's coming by. And I tell Kelly, I love you more than anything. Let me prove it to you. And I go jump in the way of the train and get killed. But I didn't push her out of the way. I mean, she wasn't about to get hurt. I just jumped in front of the train to die to show her how much I loved her. Have I shown her how much I loved her just by dying for no apparent reason? No. What would show her how much I loved her is if she was in the path, I pushed her out of the way, and in the process, I died in her place. That is love. The world may hear Jesus died, but they don't know that He died for their sin. And that's what makes the news good. And that is what brings great joy. Because if Jesus took away sin, then there is is great joy in that. Now, let me admit here, the gospel is good news no matter how anyone responds. But the gospel really only brings great joy if people turn to Jesus and are saved. If you tell someone they've sinned against a holy God, they've earned His wrath and they reject the Savior, you haven't brought great joy into their lives. But you've still given them the good news they need to know. They must know the good news. They must embrace the good news. And then it brings great joy. This is the way it is. The gospel is good news. Bringing great joy. Because it tells us about a Savior who came to die for our sins. And who brings us to God. To the relationship with God we are meant to have. Through Jesus We can know God, we can love God, we can experience God and His love for us. We can have a love-based relationship with the God who spoke the world into existence, the God who is sovereign 
over all. We can know God in this life. Our relationship with Him can get continually better. And then it will continue on into the next life. That's good news that brings great joy. But then finally, the gospel is for all people. Right? For today, which will be for all people. Good news, great joy, which will be for all people. The gospel is for all people. And it's neat because not only does it tell us that it's for all people, but it gives us the example of it being for all people. Because the first people God chose to reveal the birth of Jesus, the good news of great joy, was to shepherds. Now, in our culture, I mean, I don't, I've never actually met a shepherd, so I don't know many shepherds. Um, but I know from being raised in Sunday school, we have typically as Christians, we have a, a good idea, a good view of shepherds. We were taught the, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the, the great shepherd over our souls. Uh, and so we have a, a kind of a positive view of shepherds. And that view can skew us to what's actually going on here. Because this world did not necessarily have a good view of shepherds. The job of a shepherd wasn't seen as a good job. It wasn't necessarily a respectable position. Shepherds were generally lower class people who essentially were not skilled or able to do anything else. Could not, for one reason or another, get another job. Possibly being outcasts. Right? As a shepherd, it's just kind of you and the sheep. You don't have to be around other people. And so it... It drew that kind of people. And, and just from practical things, you spend all your time in a field around sheep. You don't necessarily smell so good in the process. Their reputation was lowly at best. And the good people of society, particularly the religious people, ignored them. And yet it was shepherds that God made a sovereign decision to reveal the birth of his son. He could have chose anybody. Those, those angels could have literally appeared anywhere in the world. They could have appeared to Herod in the palace. They could have appeared to the religious leaders in their synagogues and their teachings. They could have appeared anywhere. But God chose to reveal Jesus and the message of Jesus to the, the lowest people in the community. Those that were outcasts that the, the world would not have had anything to do with. Why? To show Jesus came to be the Savior of all. That it wasn't just a cool saying. It wasn't just something that you would put on a coffee mug, but it didn't mean. It literally meant He was for all people. For all people, it means two ideas. One is, it means for all people of every Language, tribe, nation, and tongue. As we saw in Revelation, in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, on the, the great day when we all gather around the throne of God, there are people from every language, tribe, and nation, and tongue gathered and worshiping the Lord. Right, So it is for all people regardless of their social or economic standing, regardless of their nationality, regardless of 
what color of skin they have, what, what their current culture is. It is for people regardless of what religion they are. Jesus came for the Muslims. If they would repent of their sins and they would believe in Jesus, they too would be saved. Jesus is for all people. But it's not only for all people of all cultures and languages and tribes and nations and tongues. It is for all people regardless of what kind of life they have lived. Jesus isn't just for quote-unquote good people. Jesus is for bad people. Look at this. I love this. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, you say, well, this doesn't sound like it's for all people because you're telling us specifically some people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I like this because the unrighteous will not, but then we're given very particular ideas of who are unrighteous. And he says, do not be deceived. So if you're one of these people, don't think you're going to be the exception. So who are the unrighteous that have no part in the kingdom of God? Well, they're sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, the habitually drunk, verbal abusers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived into thinking anyone will be the exception. Again, you think, well, that doesn't sound like everybody because you're just giving us this list of people who won't be. But look at what it goes on to say. Such were some of you. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Now, this, again, this should blow our minds. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul refers to the people there, sanctified saints in God. So some of those people who he calls saints, at one point, they were sexually immoral. At one point, they were idolaters. At one point, they were adulterers. At one point, they were homosexuals. At one point, they were thieves. They were greedy. They were drunkards. They were verbally abusive. They were swindlers. At one point, they were. But something happened that changed them forever. And it wasn't that they turned over a new leaf. They didn't get religion. They didn't change their morals. They didn't change their their education. They didn't change their dress. What, what changed, what made the difference was Jesus. They were washed and sanctified and justified through the Lord Jesus. Jesus had delivered them. Jesus had sanctified them. Jesus had washed them. And now they were saints of God. Now they were a part of the kingdom of God. Now they would be a part of that great crowd rejoicing around the throne. When the end of time comes, the gospel is good news because it is for everyone. The gospel is good news for it is for every race, every social or economic standing, every culture and every nationality. The gospel is good news because it is for those living in any and every kind of sin imaginable, no matter who someone is. No matter where they've been, what they've done, what they're like, if they will repent of their sins, they will believe in the Lord Jesus, they too will be washed and sanctified and justified through the Lord Jesus. Everyone is invited to come. Everyone is welcome at the cross. Advent gives us hope. Not only because it reminds us of our great God who is sovereign over all. But because it reminds us 
that He sent His Son to come and be the Savior of all who would believe. That is a good news. That is a message that brings great joy. That is a message for all people. And that message must be declared to all. People will not be saved unless they first hear the message. Romans 10 is clear. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. However, how will they call upon the one they've not heard? Or how will they call if they don't believe? How will they believe if they don't hear? How will they hear unless someone tells them? The message can't be received through osmosis. By the mere fact that a church is in their community doesn't mean the people have heard. Somebody literally has to go to them and tell them the the message that is good news that brings great joy about a Savior who has come for all people. Jesus must be declared to all because He is the hope of Christmas. And then thirdly, Jesus will be worshipped by all. The great theme, one of the great themes in the Christmas story and all of them combined is Jesus being worshipped. In this passage, we see the angels worshiping Jesus in verses 13 and 14. We see the shepherds worshiping Jesus in verse 17, 18. Matthew's account, we see the wise men from the east and they gather and they worship Jesus. As the the focus of history, the meaning of Christmas the Savior of the world, the soon coming King over kings and Lord over lords. Jesus is supremely great and thus absolutely absolutely worthy of the worship of all people. All people everywhere owe their allegiance and their worship to the one who came and died on their behalf. This is one of the reasons we do what we do to help people know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Our ultimate goal isn't just to get people to pray a prayer or to confess something. We want them to become worshipers of Jesus. People who devote their lives to Him. This isn't a part of the message. I've got to be quick on this. I am more convinced than ever I have been. Someone who makes a profession of Jesus, but it has no impact on their lives, does not lead them to worship Him in any noticeable way, I do not believe those people will call heaven their home. Nothing in Scripture indicates to us someone can pray a prayer, live how they want, and go to heaven when they die. Who goes to heaven? Those who love Jesus and those who worship Jesus. What do we do in heaven? We will love Jesus and we will worship Jesus. Why would heaven be heaven? To anyone who doesn't love Jesus and worship Him here. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. The goal. The goal is not to get someone to pray a prayer. To get dunked in the tank. The goal is for them to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Paul says to the Galatians, his heart ached to see Christ fully formed in them. Christians, keep in mind, he's talking to people who professed faith. And he he ached as though he himself were giving birth to see Christ fully formed in them. 
We don't merely want people to make professions. We want them to be disciples. We want them to be worshipers. A profession of faith that does not produce the worship of Christ does not produce salvation. You cannot find it in God's Word. But I can show you over and over again where God's Word says things like those who do these things have no part in the kingdom of God. It doesn't say unless they've made a profession, does it? I can show you in God's Word where it says examine your life. See if there's evidence of Jesus being involved in your life. And if there's not, know you've failed the test. I can show you all through 1 John where John says those who do such things, you, you don't even know God. Right? So, all of that as a, as a rabbit trail to say our goal and what we do is to help people become worshipers of God. Devoted to Jesus, not merely make a profession of faith. One of the reasons we do this is because Jesus will be worshipped. That, that's a guarantee. The day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be two times people do it. Now and then. People will do it now because they understand the message is good news that brings great joy and it was for them. And they will devote themselves to Him. They will repent of their sins. They will believe in Jesus. And they will worship Him from that day forth. But those who resist that now, those who reject that now, the day will come when Christ returns and judgment stands upon the earth. And at the great white throne, people will bow their knees and they will confess Jesus as Lord. But it will not be the confession of a worshiper of Jesus. It will not be the confession of a believer and a devoted disciple of Jesus. Instead, it will be the unwilling bowing and fear-filled confession of a rebel now standing before the king in judgment. And the God who is sovereign over all things, he will ensure this comes to pass. He will ensure every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So the only question for all of us is not will we bow the knee? Will we confess Jesus? But when will we do it? Will we do it now in adoration and worship and love of the one who has died for us? Or will we do it then? In the face of the judge who is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I. One of my deep fears in life and the fear of every pastor I know. Is of people who come to church. Who hear the message. Who are only nominally involved, nominally committed made a profession, but you don't want to get carried away about things. And they've never really bowed the knee. Never really called upon the Lord. And on judgment day, they will say, they will hear Jesus say, depart from me. I never knew you. We don't have to wonder 
about that. We don't have to say, I gosh, I hope that's not me. We can know. Romans 8 talks about the, the spirit of adoption in us. Testifying we are children of God. Today, if you're not sure whether or not you're saved, that's not God's will. That's not just the way it has to be. You, you can know. We, we should know. Think about how God must feel about us living in that sort of wondering. How would you feel if you found out your kids weren't sure you really loved them? Gosh, that would hurt my heart if my kids thought they weren't sure. I mean, I guess Dad may love me. I don't know. And that would break my heart. I want my daughters to know I love them. God wants us to know we're His. We can know. If we repent, if we believe, if we cry out for certainty, the Spirit of God within us will testify we are. Or the Spirit of God will begin to convict us and show us that we need to repent and believe. Will you bow the knee today? Will you confess Jesus as Lord today? Or will you wait until it's too late? Let's stand as our musicians come forward. And I know I didn't prepare them for a, an invitational song, but I just just some music in the background as we respond.